Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, I'm, I'm reading a pretty long chunk of scripture to you this morning, so just be prepared. Uh, I'm going to start in Numbers chapter 13, verse 17, and go through uh, chapter 14, verse 9. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rahab towards Labo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where Ahman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly of Israelites gathered there. Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, 
The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Moses sends his, his spies up into the promised land, and you know, they're, they're supposed to go and, and you know, look at everything and, and come back and tell them. And the interesting thing is, right, all this time as they've, been, as they've been kind of coming up out of Egypt and going towards the promised land, how many times have the Israelites doubted what God was doing, right? Over and over and over again, they question whether or not God has really taken them somewhere good. So I have to think that actually the main reason that Mo- Moses sends these people ahead of them is so that they can come back and, and finally the Israelites will have someone else who's saying, this place is great, you're going to love it there, right? And I think he's very surprised when they come back and say, yeah, it's nice, but we're all going to die if we go in there. We don't want to go. Right? But notice that, that actually all of God's promises are true, right? It's a rich and, and bountiful land, but they come back and they see these people. And there's this mention of the, of the Nephilim. And if, if you've been reading along in our Bible reading plan, right, you might remember back in, in the early chapters of Genesis, that word is mentioned again. And it's just this sort of odd mytholo- mythological group of people. And, and no one's really sure what they mean because they're not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And they're not mentioned anywhere else outside the Bible either. So we just sort of have to guess that this is some sort of like at least semi-mythological group of people who were supposed to be these giant, fearsome warriors. Um, we do know that the people of Anak, who they're associated with, are, are real people, and that they were actually people who were larger than average uh, compared to the, the rest of the world, right? But that means they might be like my size, because if I lived back then, I'd be a, like in the freak show as the hairy giant. Because uh, most people are, you know, 5'4", like that's the average height of a person in this day and age. Um, but they are people of, of unusual size, and they go in and they, they see these large people. And, you know, we don't often uh, uh, think about this, but, but in this day and age, you know, if you lived in a land that was fertile and you had plenty of food, um, your people would literally be bigger and stronger than people who didn't. And so you've got this group of Israelites who, who were slaves, right? So they probably weren't actually getting the best of the food. And then now they're wandering around in this desert wilderness, so they've probably actually slimmed down quite a bit since they left Egypt. And they're looking at these people who live in one of the most fertile parts of, of that area of the world, who have plenty to eat, who, who uh, have, have no shortage of food or water or, or any of that stuff. And they probably are actually quite a bit bigger and stronger looking than your average Israelite. And they come back and say, this is terrifying. These people, they're huge, they're gigantic, uh, and, and they have all these big fortified cities. There's no way we can possibly go in there and, and take over this land. And then they, they go so far as to say, God, it would have been better if we just died in Egypt. God, why did you bring us out of slavery just to have us killed here? Right? Which, of course, they say all the time. Have you noticed that if you're reading through the Old Testament? Every time they encounter even the slightest bit of challenge, Lord, why did you bring us out of slavery just to kill us in the desert? Right? Every time. And then every time God gets mad and Moses talks him back from the ledge, right? And then they even go so far as say, this Moses guy clearly doesn't know what he's doing. We're going to get a new leader who's better than Moses, and he'll take us back to Egypt.
it's almost as though they had convinced themselves that because God promised that land to them, it would be easy for them to take it. Right? They, they think that because this is their promised land, that God's just going to smooth the way before them. They'll just walk right in. Maybe God will have somehow already driven all the Canaanites out and they'll just be able to walk in and take these empty houses and, hey, great, we've got cities now. Wonderful. You know, we do this all the time. We, uh, we, we decide that if God has called us to do something or if he's sending us somewhere or, or, or promised us something, that that must mean it's going to be easy. God's going to smooth the way for us. He's going to remove any obstacles. He's going he's to remove any danger or any of that stuff. And, and, and what happens then is that at the first hint of any kind of challenge, we give up. We assume, well, it's harder than I thought, so this must not be what God wanted for me. And this happens, I, I think this happens actually more to churches than to individuals. Because I, I think actually, individually, we're usually pretty good about rising to meet a challenge. Most of us, most of us don't always just immediately back off from that. But, but corporately as churches, not just as individual churches, but as the church, right? We have a tendency to run into challenges and give up because we assume if God wanted us to do this, he would have made it easy. Every church assumes this, right? I'm not, I'm not singling you all out or anything, right? This is every church, right? If God, if God wanted us to grow, he would have brought the people to our front doors and put them in our pews and he would have made them people that we like and it would have been great and easy, Right? That's the unspoken assumption, and sometimes it's the spoken assumption, right? I mean, I have heard people say it. It's all too often we're, we're afraid of where God wants us to go. And we're afraid of, of doing the things it takes to reach new people. And I don't just mean that we're afraid to like go out there and tell strangers about Jesus, right? Because... We can understand that fear. We're afraid of what happens when those new people actually walk in the doors of the church. We are. I, I, I know I look young, but I am actually old enough to remember what it was like, uh, at least within the Methodist churches, when uh, contemporary music started to become a thing and churches started adding contemporary worship services. And so I can remember how terrified people were of this thing, right? I'm not, I'm not just talking about people who like, like just prefer traditional worship and didn't want to go to the new worship service, right? That's fine. That's, everyone has those preferences. It's okay to, to not like it and want to be in a traditional service. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about the people who, who would flat out say, we can't add a second service with different music because they were afraid of the kind of people who would come to their church for that service. And they wouldn't say that out loud, but that's what was going on. Do you know, when, when my dad was pastoring a church in Llano, now that church had one service. It was a traditional worship service. He wasn't changing the worship style or anything like that, but he brought a guitar to church one Sunday. And uh, he, didn't, he didn't do anything in the worship. He's like, this was for his sermon, right? So as he's preaching, because he plays guitar and sings, and so he, you know, he incorporates this song into his sermon. And... and one lady wrote him a letter kindly informing him that if he brought a guitar into the church again, he would go to hell. Um, yeah, isn't that great? 
Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, poor, poor Bill is doomed. Uh, right. But what that reaction is born from is a, a fear of what's going to happen if, if the church does anything different or anything new. And it's a completely unfounded fear, of course, because they haven't tried it yet. But, but, and I can't say this clearly enough. Right? This is not a condemnation of people who like doing things the old way. This is, this is a different sort of thing. We're afraid of change. We're, we're afraid of what seems to be a challenge we can't possibly meet. And you better believe that, that the churches that back off from those challenges, God will keep them in the desert till a new generation rises up to lead them. It's happened. We've seen it happen with individual churches, with denominations, with the global church. It's happened. I don't mean to be, you know, a complete downer here, because I'm, I'm not just talking about you know things that are happening right now. But but look, if you look around the world around us today, churches have a lot of challenges before them, and every church says that they want to grow and they want to reach new people and they want to expand and they want to do all these new things. But then when they're confronted with the reality of it, they back down because it's harder than they think it's going to be. And and see, we look at like the churches that are really big and vibrant and have thousands and thousands of people coming and, and we think we want to be like that in some way. We want to do what they do at least because what they're doing is working and we assume that what they're doing is easy. And you know, I can tell you as a, as a pastor, what, one thing I hear from other pastors all the time is this like envy of, of the pastors who have those really large churches because they, like, they think, oh, that, that must be such an easy job, Right? Because right? they're looking at the problems that they have in smaller churches and the, and the budget issues that they have and, and the, the struggle to find people to do things. And, and what I wish I, I would tell them all the time is because you know, I, have a, a, I have friends and family and colleagues who are in those big churches, and what I can tell them is they have the exact same problems you do, but just magnified and more terrifying and more stressful, right? You think you have budget problems? No, 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 no. <laughs> like, like, you can find someone to pay for, for the things you need. If, if you run short in one month, you have one or two people you can go to who you can ask for maybe a special donation to cover these bills. But, but their bill that might be short on is like a million dollars and no one can cover that in one check, right? They have bigger problems. It's the same problem, but magnified. Their challenges don't go away. And this is what the people of God have to begin to understand. The challenges do not go away. And God does not make things easy for us. And if you pay attention when you're reading the Old Testament, you notice God never actually promises them that it's going to be easy for them to get into the promised land. He just says it's a good place to be, right? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's fertile. You'll be able to grow crops there with no trouble. It'll be wonderful. It'll be your land. He never says it's going to be easy for you to get in. That's something they thought up on their own. He also never says, once you're there, everything will be easy. That's also something they thought up on their own. And of course, once they're in the promised land, the challenges don't go away. If anything, they get bigger. Now, all of a sudden, they have borders they have to defend. 
Now they have a settled nation they have to unite and protect and run. And they have to figure out how to live together in a new way as the people of God. It's, it's, it just gets harder and harder and harder. And what I find often with Christians at the individual level and at the church level is that they always think, if I just get to this point, whatever their goal is, it'll all be easier. And then they're surprised when they get there and God plops a new challenge right in front of them. Remember when Jesus says, right, to, to him who has, more will be given? This is kind of what he's talking about. You've done good work here, now here's more work to do. God does not ever promise that things will be easy. And you know, the amazing thing about this story, I, I think, is that you know, the, these people who are all of a sudden terrified that God's going to just you know, require them to do all this fighting on their own, these are the same people who walked through the Red Sea when God parted the waters, right? These are the same people who, who see the manna appearing on the ground every single morning. They're the same people who watched him bring water out of a dry rock, do you know, because you, if you're reading in Numbers, right, you, you've read by now that, that what happens is every time they make camp, the presence of God descends in clouds and thunder down onto the tabernacle and stays there until it's time to move. And then it lifts up and moves and they follow it and that's how they figure out where they're going to go and they stop when the clouds start coming back down. They see before their very eyes every single day the physical manifestation of the presence of God leading them through the wilderness and all of a sudden this seems like too much. (laughs) It's almost incomprehensible. But we do the same thing. If I ask anyone in here, how you've seen God at work in your life, what miracles you've seen, where you've seen God's presence, you all have answers. You've probably got a list, and I would bet, based on my experience, as you start listing the things that come to your mind first, more and more things will come up too. Things that you might not have thought of before, but now that you're really thinking about, oh yeah, I saw God here and here and here and here and here. We've all seen God at work in our lives. We've all, in one way or another, experienced his presence, and the more we think about it, the more of those moments will come to mind. Sometimes things we didn't even realize at the time. I would bet just about everyone in here has had a moment where they have experienced God's provision for them or God's protection on them. We've all seen the presence of God in our lives. And yet, we all still have moments where we think all of a sudden, he's not going to lead us through this next thing. Because isn't that ultimately what they're saying here? Is that they believe that even though God has led them this far, he's going to leave them on their own to go in and claim the promised land? They don't ever say God can't take these people on. They say we can't take them. Right? The spies who in there don't say that those people are stronger than God. They say they're stronger than we are. Somehow, someway, they've gotten it into their heads that if they, if they cross that border and go into the promised land, all of a sudden they're on their own. And this God who's led them in all these miraculous ways so far, it's just going to say, all right, have fun. Good luck. I don't know where they get it from. But we do the same thing. We all fall into this trap, no matter how often we have, we have 
encounter things where we know God was by our side and we know God gave us the strength that we needed to do something, the next time we're in need of him, we just assume he's going to let us handle it on our own. And you know, collectively as the church, we, we have to get over that. And, and you know, you guys, especially those of you who have been at Asbury a long time, you know, this was a church plant at one point. And, and you know, church plants face challenges that established churches don't. So I'm sure that there are people in here who can remember the, the difficulties and the things that were overcome by this congregation in the early years. You know how valuable that is? The last church I served was 180 years old. Almost as old as my parents. And you can tell them I said that. They don't remember the difficulties they would have faced when they were just starting out because they weren't alive. That living memory is gone. And, and here's what I can tell you. I spent three months at one point with people trying to, to, to prayerfully discern what we could do to, to improve our reach in the community, to reach new people, to, to start figuring out how to get get the word of God out from our church and into the community around us. And, and, and the whole point of the exercise was not for me to give them ideas, right? Because what I didn't want to have happen was this is my ministry that I run and then when I'm gone, it's gone. I wanted this to be something that they took ownership of and they were excited about that they would maintain for, for years and years down the line. And, and they couldn't do it. And I don't just mean that they like, couldn't take an idea and run with it. I mean, they couldn't come up with an idea. They could think of things that they had done 40, 50 years ago that worked, but they could not come up with an idea. For them, for them, the challenge of continuing to exist as the church seemed too hard. Because that's what it all boiled down to, right? They weren't bringing in new people. Every one of them was over 65. Eventually, they were all going to die off. And the challenge of continuing to exist as the church seemed too hard. A church that had been there for 180 years with God by their side every step of the way was beginning to think it was too hard to keep going. Now again, I don't want to be a downer. I want to point out you guys aren't there yet. It's fine. You're okay. Don't, don't panic, right? But all of our churches over the next few years, they're going to be looking at what seem like insurmountable challenges. I mean, you look at the international headlines today, and, and those are terrifying enough. And then you think about uh, the, the division and the bitterness here in our own society and, and the increasing marginalization of all religious beliefs and all the difficulties churches face and turmoil within our own churches and within our denomination and all of these things going on. And it begins to look like being the people of God might just be too much. And finding ways to be faithful and to be the church of Christ and to be the body of Christ right here and right now might just be something we're not up to. Because those challenges seem insurmountable. And, and believe me, I know. I mean, I'm facing all of the same things that you all are. I know how difficult it looks. I know, I know that, that for so many people, the future of the church looks kind of bleak and it's not clear what we're going to do. But what is clear is that God is not going to abandon his church. He didn't abandon his people 
right? Even though he made them go back and wander the desert for 40 years, he didn't leave them. Do you notice that? It's not like he just stayed put right there and sent them off into the desert. He went and wandered with them until they were ready to come back, and he stayed with them the whole way. And the whole story of the Old Testament is the story of God's people trying as hard as they can to get out of the covenant they made with him, right? Over and over again. Can we just go back to Egypt? God, we're tired of the desert. And then they get into the promise, and then they break it again and again and again, and God does not abandon them. Even the part where he sends them into exile, he's with them, and then he brings them back, and he's still with them. He's always faithful to his people even when they aren't faithful to him. Because he will bring them back into the fold. Our God is a faithful God who stands by his people. And if we just trust that he is by our side in everything that we do and that his presence is going with us and before us, we don't have anything to fear. The question before each and every church, not necessarily right this minute, but at some point in the next several years for every church in the country, as we face the shifting tides of culture and and try and decide how to move forward as a church in in a world that is rapidly changing, we're all going to have to actually ask ourselves, do we think that God is present with us as we go forward? Do we think Do we think we can actually keep doing this? Essentially, we're asking ourselves the same questions the Israelites are asking as they're looking over the border into the promised land and wondering if they have the strength to do it. In other words, do you think God's presence is still with you or do you think he's left and he's left you on your own for some reason? Are you going to trust that God is with us? that God is empowering us and that God is leading us. Because as long as you will do that, you won't hit that wall where things seem too hard. As long as you understand that, yes, God asks you to do difficult things, but he does not abandon you to do them on your own, you'll be okay. It's when we start thinking that, that God only calls us to the easy stuff, and if it's hard, it must not be the thing God wants us to do. That's when we get into trouble. The Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. That's how that passage ends. Now, they don't listen to him. And so they get in trouble. And they don't get to see the promised land. If they'd only listened, the story would have been much different. And that's the story all throughout the Old Testament. If they would only listen, the story would have been much different. Because they keep making the same mistake and they keep thinking God has abandoned them and they have to go to other sources. And they have to turn to other people for protection and turn to other gods for protection or for help or for provision. And if they had just trusted that God was still with them, the story might have been very different. See, God is with you. Today, tomorrow, and the next day, and every day after that. Whatever may come, God is with you. Whatever challenges we face as a church, God is with us. Whatever he calls us to do, no matter how difficult it might seem, 
maybe even if it seems impossible, God is with us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.